and welcome to City Break Ideas, episode 12. I'm Marion Jones, I run City Breaks, and this week, as per once a month, we're taking a little break from the actual City Break series, which is London, more about that later, perhaps, and taking time out to look at a selection of websites by other travel bloggers, see what we can learn from those little tidbits about cities to visit, cities they visited, something to whet your appetite, or help you reminisce, perhaps, if you've been there already. City Break Ideas episodes do tend to attract some new listeners, so if that's you, welcome, bienvenue, willkommen, etc. in the various languages that we've exchanged nods with so far. And perhaps I should just explain that if you're not familiar with City Break podcasts, what we do is we take one city at a time and go on a nice, long, slow visit there, pop into all the big sites, bring you lots of history and culture and bits and pieces that it would be good to know before you visit so that you know what you're looking at. But this week, the first week of the month, a diversion, a digression, if you will, into what other people can bring you about cities. I'm pleased to report that I had three very happy bunnies last time, featured three different websites, and they all took the trouble to write and say, thanks very much, love what you do. There was Hannah Henderson, do you remember? We went to 20 US cities with her and popped into Bone in central France and discovered what her website had to tell us about visiting the vineyards and sampling the wine around there. Thanks so much for featuring my blog, she said, and for delivering it so beautifully. Jamie Boucher, do you remember, with the Bristolian Abroad website? We went to, I think it was three Australian cities, and he wrote and said, Thank you so much for featuring me on your Awesome City Breaks podcast. Your voice is so soothing to listen to. Not what my family say, by the way, but oh well, it's always good if someone's pleased. And then thirdly, we went to the Just Us 2 website and went on a trip to Central Europe with them, Prague and Dresden. It's so strange, they wrote, listening to somebody else talk about our trip, bringing it to life again. So this month then, three more absolutely fabulous websites. I think I could actually have done a whole episode on any one of the three, but I've squeezed them all into this one, so I can promise you a veritable extravaganza of ideas, and I really think they ought to get straight into it. Okay then, so the first website is abfabtravels.com. Just a reminder that I'll put the links to all the websites at the end of the show notes so that you can find them. I hope in fact you will go and find them because there's so much more on all of them than I can possibly summarise in a few minutes each. Anyway, the homepage to Abfab Travels offers us a tagline, explore and enjoy, some lovely scenic pictures, a camper van, that turns out to be quite important, because the people who run it are quite into exploring and getting into nooks and crannies, often in their camper van. It's a website, they say, about travelling and exploring and making the most of this fabulous life. No regrets and no, I wish we had when we were younger. And then one of my favourite Latin quotations ever, Carpe diem, seize the day. Don't hang about, go for it. You can hear already that I loved this website. It's run by Jane, and it's mainly about the travel she's been on with her husband Peter, I think mostly relatively recently since their children have grown up and gone off to do their own thing. They've got the camper van, they've got a motorbike, and they set off to all kinds of places. There's a cycling trek in Cambodia, a fabulous tour of China, a trek in Peru, and a tour of Japan by train. We love to hike, bike and ski, it says. So you'll find articles about those activities here, but we also like good food and wine and whiskey. We love to explore cities, discover art and culture, and visit places of historical interest. 
You're surely getting the idea about mine not being able to cover a tenth of what there is on there. So I'm just going to make a very brief mention of some of the non-city-based posts before we get down to the main business. So there are lots and lots of Lake District posts, Lake District in the UK that is, if you're listening abroad. There's a road trip through Scotland which took in Orkney and Skye and quite a lot of whisky and distilleries. There are 20 plus posts on North America, hikes, the Yellowstone National Park, a visit to Graceland, a bit more whisky. There's Jersey and Italy and England and even a little section I like the look of called Have Dog, Will Travel, which tells us all about how the newest arrival to the family, Lucky Jasper, is taken along on many of these jaunts. But for today, I wanted to focus on the tour of Japan and specifically on a couple of the cities that Jane visited. So it's a tour by train with actually some very helpful details about how to get hold of a thing called a JR Pass, which is the Save Some Money Rail Pass that lasts, I think, two weeks and you can use to go all around Japan. So if you are planning a trip or even just musing about the possibility, that'd be very helpful. Anyway, Jane and her husband flew to Tokyo, then they went on, I think they were there about two weeks, they went to the Hakone National Park, to Hiroshima, to Kyoto, and to Osaka, from where they flew home. I don't think I've covered Tokyo on any of the podcasts yet, so I thought, right, let's do that. And again, far more detail than I can possibly recount, so I've picked just a few things, and I did want to mention there are lots and lots of photographs which really will give you a lot more info as well. So, in Tokyo... They made a bit of a point of visiting some of the parks, the wonderfully named Yoyogi Park, which I hadn't heard of, and the Ueno Park, which I think is possibly the largest and certainly the best known of Tokyo's parks. The place to go if you're in season, actually, to see the cherry blossom. I have very fond memories of doing exactly that. One of our sons did a teaching English year in Tokyo, and we went out for cherry blossom season, and I distinctly remember walking around this lovely park full of huge blue picnic blankets, often with only just one person sitting on them. And our son explained to us that if you were the junior member of your office during cherry blossom season, it was your job to take the office picnic blanket to the park, bag a great spot and sit on it until everybody else arrives. As Jane explains, Tokyo is a huge, sprawling, vibrant city with many different areas and each one has its own character. So I picked out a couple of the ones she visited, just to mention. Ginza, which she describes as a really buzzy modern area, regarded as the high-end shopping section of Tokyo, and Shibuya, described as another happening district. The big thing about Shibuya seems to be it's a massive intersection of roads, and as Jane explains, the pedestrian lights all come on at once, and suddenly you've got a mass crisscrossing of people from every spoke of the crossing. I do remember that. It is entirely baffling. To pick out just a couple of the sites that she mentioned... The Sky Tree, which is the tallest freestanding steel tower in the world, overlooks the city, of course, in every direction. You can go up to floor, wait for it, 350, or if that's not exciting, stroke nerve-wracking enough, you can actually go higher, up to the 450th floor. I'm not quite sure which Jane did, but she says, rather cheerfully, it was bright, but a little hazy, and the views were good, but not quite clear enough to see Mount Fuji. Which reminded me, that was another great feature of being in Tokyo. Had you or hadn't you yet seen Mount Fuji, or Fujisan, as the Japanese seem to call it? I do remember you can go on a day trip out of the city to see it, and when you go to buy your tickets at the train station, they've actually got film footage 
in real time of Mount Fuji that day, so you can make a decision as to whether it's likely to be clear enough to see it properly when you get there. Handy. And Jane also describes a day trip from Tokyo out to somewhere called Kamakura. Takes about an hour, and one of the main things to do there is to walk the shrine trail on which you will see the great Buddha. Now that's an enormous statue. And also to visit somewhere called the Hasidera Temple, which, as Jane points out, has beautiful, extensive grounds. So a nice day out of the hustle and bustle of the city of Tokyo. Going to move on to one of the other cities that Jane describes visiting, Hiroshima. We didn't actually go there when we were in Japan, but I do remember my son saying of all the things he'd done in the year he was in Japan, the visit to Hiroshima was possibly the most memorable. As I'm sure you know, the name is world famous because of the terrible event that happened there in 1945 when the atom bomb was dropped on the city. And a visit there today is likely to centre around the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Park. Clearly that's going to be a difficult visit in many ways. And this is what Jane had to say about that. It has to be said that a whole tourist industry has grown up around the dreadful events of 1945. But the emphasis is very much on remembering, learning and peace. There was a tone of respect everywhere we went. The Peace Memorial itself is built around the Exhibition Hall, which was the only building left standing after the bomb had dropped, and which is now a World Heritage Site. There's a cenotaph, an eternal flame, a memorial dome, and an archway with a stone chest beneath it, which contains the names of all the people who died as a result of the bomb. There's a separate children's memorial, the Children's Peace Monument, erected in memory of one young girl, Sadako Sasaki, who died of leukaemia as a result of the bomb. And so she stands for all the other child victims and all the people who weren't killed on the day, but who died afterwards. Victims of the after-effects. It is, of course, first and foremost a place of remembrance, but it's also a place for learning, for teaching today's generations about what happened. Here's what Jane writes about that. The museum in the Peace Park presents the facts of what happened when the bomb exploded on Hiroshima and concentrates on the stories of individuals. On display are the actual clothes that people, children, were wearing when the bomb exploded. Reading their stories, often told by relatives, brings home what an atrocity this was. President Obama visited the museum and left behind a message of hope for peace and some paper cranes which he'd folded. I found this very moving. I do remember that when we left Japan after a fortnight, we felt it was very much a place that we would like to revisit. And if we ever do, I think Hiroshima is somewhere that I'll make sure I see you next time round. There are lots of bits and pieces on the website as well about aspects of Japanese culture. And this is where I probably start to mispronounce things. So, Jane stayed certainly a night or two in a ryokan, which is a traditional Japanese inn. Lots of experiences there. For example, the dinner in the evening when guests were expected to wear a yukata, and these were provided in case you hadn't brought your own. Definitely a place to try all sorts of home Japanese cooking. Much of it Jane describes as very tasty and beautifully presented, although I think she did draw the line just a little at what she said she could only describe as fish custard, with which she was presented one morning at breakfast. There's so much else that you can learn from the website, for example about a visit to an onsen, those Japanese bathing areas, lots about temples and shrines, lots more about food. So, for example, they spent three hours in a traditional seafood restaurant where you had to sit or kneel on the floor for the entire meal. 
There's a description of all the hundreds of food stalls along the riverbank in Osaka, where they tried something called tokiyaki, apparently one of Japan's best-known street foods, and thankfully a definition comes along just after that. A sort of dough ball filled with octopus and a few other goodies, and then covered in a sauce of your choice. Very tasty. I learnt too that in Hiroshima one of the specialities is very much oysters, whereas in Osaka it's more likely to be crab. Prepared, as Jane says, in every way imaginable. So there really is lots and lots to explore, all the places I haven't mentioned, lots of customs and bits of cultural information which I've left out too. Go have a look. abfabtravels.com OK, so that's the moment to move on then to the second website which I've picked for today, which is called besidestheobvious.net, run by Anna and Danny. And here's what they have to say on their homepage. Our mission is to share something relevant, something authentic, Something real, something cool, something interesting, something personal, and something different via travel stories and images. We focus on ideas from local sources, giving tips that are usually unknown for travellers and foreigners, guides to secret places which only the guy from the neighbourhood could know. And they too have a whole wealth of interesting sections that I'm not going to cover in detail today. So for example, there's one called Culinary Journey, nearly 30 posts in that, all sorts of information about local foods and drinks, recipes. So to give you just a flavour, one of the posts is on uh, the Canary Islands, where they spent three weeks. And there are sections in that on something I'm also probably going to mispronounce, papas arugadas, which apparently means wrinkled potatoes. A very simple recipe using locally grown boiled potatoes, which you cook unpeeled with salt in some fashion that makes the skin end up wrinkled, and then serve with a little butter in which you can eat all over the islands, in every restaurant, a starter or perhaps as tapas or as a side dish. There's information on a speciality cheese from Fuerteventura. There's a section on a traditional recipe for canary and goat meat stew, valued by the inhabitants and the tourists, a slow cooking process and lots of different treatments, so that all the ingredients are melted and the flavours fill every corner of the pot. But that's just one section. There's also a whole lot of bucket lists, and I think my favourite was the bucket list to London. 70 things to do in London, a real mix of must-dos and quirky things. Lots of things which are indeed very London experiences, which wouldn't cost you really anything at all. And it's not just a list, because everything on the list is a link down to more information. Where to do it, how to do it, whether it'll cost you anything, etc. So just as a flavour, the top five on the list are Catch a Cab, Go on a double-decker bus ride, take a loop on the London Eye, go to a West End musical, explore Chinatown. I quite like number eight and ten as well. Get a selfie in a red phone cabin and get lost in Harrods. And then there are all their destinations, lots and lots in Europe, Africa, Asia and South America. And I've picked out just two cities to feature today. One is a City Breaks favourite, and then I went for the other end of the scale, somewhere I'd actually never heard of. Never mind had any idea how to pronounce. I was drawn to the post on Seville in Andalusia, southern Spain, because as you may well know, there's a City Break series on Seville. And as soon as I read the opening lines, I felt as if I was right back there. When we arrived, they've written, Seville was empty. It was siesta time. And I must say, whoever invented this tradition was a very smart person. You basically cannot handle being outside during the afternoon hours. And I kept finding things that I recognised, but which would be very interesting for somebody who hadn't been to Seville, a sort of what might you go and see and what would it be like sort of list. 
So they went to the cathedral and the Giralda and the Alcazar. Here's what they had to say on Santa Cruz, which is a little area of tiny streets, one of the oldest parts of the city. In Santa Cruz, they write, it's easy to find cosy taverns, always crowded and cute corners everywhere. The streets are narrow and you may get lost due to its irregular design. And all of this, as they explain, is because in Santa Cruz, you're in the area which in medieval times was the Jewish quarter. They also talked about a visit to Triana, which is the part of the city across the other side of the river, which a lot of people don't get to visit. And they point out what the people of Seville themselves say. If you go to their city without visiting Triana, then you haven't really seen it. And you know, as soon as you're crossing the bridge, that you're going somewhere a little different, as Anna and Danny put it. Once we crossed the bridge, we could already see the flower-filled patios, tiled in yellow and blue, which is a tradition throughout Andalusia. I know from the research I did for the Seville series that Triana's seen as the home of two of Spain's best-known cultural phenomena, namely bullfighting and flamenco. And Anna and Danny found a quotation which sums up the idea that Triana's set apart from the rest of the city. Triana is not just a neighbourhood, it's a way of life, a way of being, a philosophy of its own that makes the people who visit and who live there feel special. There were some little linguistic treasures among the descriptions as well, which I enjoyed. For example, Anna writes that Danny, who I think is actually Spanish, explained to her that a popular way of saying goodbye in Seville is por la sombra. I'll let Anna explain. So she writes, Ia por la sombra literally means to stay or walk in the shade. As a colloquial figure of speech, though, the meaning has evolved to mean take care or stay safe, mind your step, take it easy. And so it's a common way to say goodbye. So yes, it's definitely a post that takes you round Seville, tells you lots of things that you can see, would pique your interest to go, or if like me you've already been, allow you some pleasant reminiscing time, remembering all the things you liked about the city. But it's peppered too with these little cultural insights that make for very interesting reading. There are lots of other posts on Andalusia. There's, for example, one on a bike tour of Seville. There's a visit to other cities, Cadiz, for example, and to other Spanish regions. So lots and lots to explore. I wanted to choose a second city to contrast with Seville, and I picked one in southwest Hungary, which I'm afraid to say I had actually never heard of. In fact, I couldn't make sense of how to pronounce the name. So it's spelt P-E-C-S, and I decided I would email Anna and Danny and say, how do I say that? And they kindly responded with a little mini sound file that explained the mystery. So we are off to Pitch. How did I do? And the reason I picked it was I was intrigued by the one of the opening lines on the post, which says, apart from the Hungarian capital, the rest of the country is a blank page in most people's minds. Yes, I thought, let's go somewhere new. Turns out, in fact, this is ignorance for you, Pitch is not new at all. It dates back to the Celtic period. It was an important commercial centre in Roman times, and these days it's a young university city. The university, incidentally, being one of the oldest in the whole of Europe, and dating from 1367. Who knew? Apologies, perhaps many people did, but I'm not one of them. Anyway, there's an interesting post on all the things that you could see if you were visiting the city. About a dozen places, each one with links for more information. So there's a lovely main square. There are mosques and a cathedral and a synagogue, very much an indication of its interesting and chequered history. 
There are a couple of art museums, one of which is dedicated to one particular Hungarian abstract artist, one Victor Vasarely. I looked at the reviews on that. They were a bit mixed, I have to say, but the one that I thought summed up the visit read, it was as if I had dropped into the 1980s. So, even if you're a big fan of 1980s art, I bet most people haven't thought of going to that museum. I hope I'm doing a good job of giving a flavour of this website, but I hope too that actually what you'll do is go and have a look, because there's so much more to explore. Just as three examples picked pretty much at random, there's a post called Eight of Europe's Loveliest Non-Capital Cities. There's one on the wine cellars of Villany in southern Hungary, and there's another one entitled Let's Get Lost in Catalonia. That one deals with, I think it was ten separate villages that if you're on a driving tour and wanted to poodle about but not miss the loveliest villages, would be the one to check. So, go find if you have the time. Besides the obvious, .net. So, follow that. And indeed I can, because the third website I've chosen for today is also absolutely chock full of stuff that you want to know if you like travelling. It's called brightnomad.net and it opens with the wording, Welcome. Bright Nomad is a travel blog about exploring local cultures around the world. Browse the site to find beautiful destinations, stylish city guides, cultural travel articles, clever trip planning tips, vegan restaurant reviews, and advice from an experienced digital nomad. And it doesn't disappoint. I had a good browse, and yes, I did find examples of all those things. And I was intrigued too by the information about the site's author, Tal, who says, I've been a digital nomad since 2009, visited about 40 countries around the world, and have a strong passion for travel photography. And actually, that is one of the highlights of the site, the photos. She says, I'm originally from Tel Aviv, where I still spend my winters. In summer, I head out to different places each year, and my favourite city is London. That's nice to hear. I think London's very nearly my favourite city too, just possibly pipped by Paris. I hope Tal, along with lots of other people, is going to enjoy City Breaks London, the series that we are currently in the middle of. OK, so back to the website. There are, again, lots of different sections. There's one called Virtual Travel, which had, I think, about 10 different posts, lots of them on Italy. So all sorts of ideas for discovering more about these cities in moments when you can't actually go and visit them personally, including some virtual tours. There's costs and details and dates and pictures. An entirely separate section is entitled Vegan Travel. I think there were about 15 posts on that, and I checked out the one on Warsaw. I was intrigued by that because in my experience in Central Europe, you don't get on all that well if you're a vegetarian or a vegan, and I wondered if Tal could tell me differently. And sure enough, she addressed it head on. Did you know, she writes, that Warsaw is a really vegan-friendly city? I didn't until I visited and discovered a vegan heaven. She goes on to explain that she spent about a week there, that she'd looked up vegan restaurants in advance on a website called Happy Cow, and learnt that there were no fewer than 38. And, as she says, that's 100% vegan restaurants, not vegetarian places or those that just offer some vegan options. And what I really liked was she then followed up with write-ups from, I think it was seven different restaurants, all of which she seemed to have visited herself, so you really get a flavour of what's on offer, which ones might suit you best, and also of the huge variety that there is to choose from. So there were vegan versions of traditional Polish food, for example. 
She found a vegan Italian restaurant which offered over 20 types of vegan pizza. She found a street food restaurant with vegan burgers. Somewhere or other she drank what she describes as a cold lemonade with chia seeds, in which she follows up by telling us that, quote, it was an interesting combination that I didn't expect. You find out for each restaurant what the atmosphere was like, along with great photos, of course, whether you can sit outside. Was there an English version of the menu? I finished the post really feeling that if I were off to Warsaw and wanted a vegan restaurant, this would be a post that, without lecturing, would tell me all the stuff I wanted to know so that I could pick the one that would really suit me best. The third section that I really liked was her advice pieces on being a digital nomad. Detailed, in-depth. When I read it, I really felt as if she wanted me to know how to do this, if that was my thing. There were whole sections on the sort of jobs that lend themselves, a much longer list than you'd think, on where you could go to do courses to get your skills together so that you really have lots to offer, information on where to actually find jobs. And that wasn't just a throwaway paragraph. That was a list of, I think it was nearly 40 links that you could actually try. Real websites with real jobs. Stuff on how to do a remote interview, how to prepare in advance. Really very comprehensive. Anyway, let's get on to the destinations, of which there are also loads. 20 or so countries, lots of them in Europe, but including some unusual ones. Lithuania's there, Albania, and also further afield, Japan, California, Israel. What to choose? I went for Scotland. There's Edinburgh, there's Loch Lomond, and there's one on how to spend a weekend in Glasgow. Now, I know that tourism-wise, Glasgow often plays rather second fiddle to Edinburgh, so I was intrigued to know, what could I do on a weekend in Glasgow? And straight away, I'm told, you can sample a nice mix of culture, history, the urban, nature, good food and entertainment. There's a suggested itinerary with, of course, the things you'd expect, the cathedral, some of the galleries and so on, but nice little asides as well. So this one, for example, on outside the Goma, which is Glasgow's modern art museum. Right outside, the statue of the Duke of Wellington on his horse, with a traffic cone on his head, is one of the most hilarious city icons I've ever seen. You have to see it. There are ideas for more unusual museums to visit. For example, Tenement House. You might know that the tenements were infamous in Glasgow, built at the turn of the last century, I believe, and slowly turned into slums, crowded housing areas where living conditions were really difficult. And one of them was turned into a museum when the last owner died, and you can go around and find out what life was like there. For a brief moment, you'll really feel like you've gone back in time, as Tout puts it. Then there are suggested lunch stops. There's a wonderful-sounding vegan pub called The Flying Duck, which offers evening entertainment, comedy, live music, that sort of thing. Or if you want to see a bit more of the nightlife, you can go on the Glaswegian Nightlife Experience, where a local guide will take you round what Tal refers to as the coolest nightlife spots in Glasgow, from a Scottish brewery to upmarket cocktail bars. And, ladies and gentlemen, we are still on day one. There's lots of ideas for day two as well. And just to pick a couple of highlights. So, the Mural Trail, which Tal describes as one of the loveliest surprises in Glasgow. And there's a street art tour where a local guide will take you round and explain all the stories behind the artwork that you're looking at. The City of Glasgow, she tells us, actively supports street art and invites artists to cover its grey, empty walls with spectacular artworks. Or you could go on the Music Mile tour. Did you know? 
I did not, that Glasgow has been a UNESCO city of music. Then there's the Botanic Gardens, or day-trip ideas. You could go out to the Highlands, or to Loch Ness, or Loch Lomond. All of this, with all the links that you need to make it actually happen, and a good sprinkling of photographs. And just finally, I went on one other post, attracted by the photograph and by the headline which read, Tirana, the fabulous colourful houses of Tirana, Albania. I'm pretty sure I've never thought of Albania and the idea of anything colourful as being linked. And so as soon as I read the sentence which said, Facades across the city were painted in bright colours. Walking round the city's a real treat. I spent hours every day exploring and taking photos of the colourful buildings. I was hooked. An explanation is given about the mayor, one Eddie Rama, who had the idea of getting people to brighten up, redecorate, repaint the old facades of the city, and explained his reasoning as follows. The rehabilitation of public spaces revived the feeling of belonging to a city that people had lost. There's actually a link on tile site to a TED talk by the mayor where he explains much more, but she quotes a bit more too. The mayor talks on there about other changes that occurred following the repainting, how the city was revived, people started to drop less litter, they started to pay their taxes, they started to feel that the streets were safe. So all of that's great, but what's even better is the most fantastic array of photos that Tal has put on there. Just go and have a look. Everyone adds to the idea of it being a positive project that changed people's lives, but also they're just lovely in their own right quirky, interesting, eye-catching, and so it's good to read somewhere on there that actually some of those photographs are for sale. So if you want a very unusual and cheerful photograph next time you're redecorating a room, go and have a look. There's lots more information about Tirana too, lots of links to things to do, where you can stay, what guided tours are on offer, what museums there are. I was intrigued to know that there are actually two museums known as Bunk Art Museums. No, me neither. There are caves to visit, there are castles to explore. If you're one of the many people who knows absolutely nothing about Albania or Tirana, then this is the post you need to fill you in. And so, I think we're coming to the end of the episode today now then. I hope you agree that really our cup will run it over. There have been so many interesting different things to go and think about. And I must say a hearty thank you to all three of the people who run those websites for letting me go exploring and cherry-pick some of the many, many goodies which I found there. And I remind you that I'm always looking for more ideas for the City Break Ideas episodes, so if you know anybody who runs a travel website that people would enjoy exploring, do send them my way. Three different ways to get in touch. You can leave a comment on the blog on the citybreakspodcast.co.uk website. You can email citybreaks at citybreakspodcast.co.uk or you can find us on Twitter, at CityBreaksCast. I'm hoping that the first episode every month is going to contain City Break ideas, as long as people keep them coming. OK, so next week then, back to the main plot, i.e. the City Breaks London series. We're halfway through the series now. A lot of the early episodes have been on the big hitters. We've been to Westminster and St Paul's and the City of London, the Tower, Buckingham Palace, all that sort of thing. And next week's episode is on the fun parts of London, the Strand, Covent Garden, Piccadilly. You'll be hearing where to get the best traditional roast dinner in the whole of London. And yes, it will be served by waiters at the table, carving it under a silver dome. We'll find out too how to get to London's oldest theatre, 
where you're likely to find ghosts. You'll even find out why Piccadilly is called Piccadilly. So, look forward to seeing you there. As you know, it's a City Breaks tradition that, where possible, I like to say goodbye in irrelevant language. So, of course, today, after thanking you for listening, I'm delighted to use that lovely Spanish phrase which I've learnt from one of today's websites, which bids you farewell, but also hopes that you'll stay safe. So, here we go then. Goodbye in Spanish. Por la sombra. <laughs>